You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. I don't know, it's 95 degrees, humid, and you can world build with air conditioning. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Moreska. I'm Cass Morris, and this is episode 55, Epic Grim Dark Punk Romance. Hello, listeners. Welcome to yet another f- beautiful, brilliant episode of World Building for Masochists, and we're so happy you've joined us today. And we're excited because we have giveaway winners to announce. Hurrah! I'm going to throw the honors over to Cass because she was our primary organizer for all this, so she should get the joy of sharing who won our fabulous Yay. prizes. All right, so here are our three winners. Miriam Rock, who is at Is a Beautiful on Twitter. <laughs> Christy Chadwick, at Books and Yarn. <laughs> and Austin, at Austin Decker. And we will be emailing each of you to get your shipping information and other relevant details. Thank you so much to everyone who entered and to everyone who spread the word and to all of you for listening. This was fun. We'll probably do one again sometime. Um... But it was it was fun to be able to do this to celebrate kicking off our third year. Yes, thanks again, everybody who entered. That was that was fun and fantastic. And I was super sorry to miss our last um, taping of um, our episode with PJ Manny talking about cyberpunk. But it got us thinking about all of the um, various subgenres and ins and outs and unders and arounds. Um, of genre in um, the wide world of sci-fi fantasy and all the ways that it can really affect your world building. And we wanted to like dive into that this time a little bit. So yeah, I guess my first question thinking about it with, with all of us is do you see yourself as neatly fitting a subgenre label of the sci-fi fantasy world or or no? Sort of. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe. I think the Oven Cycle alone certainly is very easy to say this is historical fantasy because I literally took history and jammed fantasy into it. And it is hard to imagine myself writing something that isn't heavily influenced by history, but I know that my next project, you know, all the things I have sort of on the back burner to work on are all second worlds. So it's going to be different. It's going to be different flavored. There are other subgenres I would like to experiment with, even though where I'm coming from is probably always going to have at least that dash of history behind it, even if it's only sort of it behind the scenes in my brain. I hear you, Cass. I suspected you might. I suspected you might. So certainly with Velocity, like that was an easy one just because I conceived of it as diesel punk. And that was that was basically the big marketing thing was, hey, here's a diesel punk secondary world fantasy. Um, and for the Meridian books, I, I mean, I think... I have bounced around of the different ways to pitch it in subgenre because it doesn't sit neatly in one. I do remember way back when I first was 
like doing agent searches for Thorne and with Holber Alley. I went to one of those conferences where there actually are agents and you get to sit with an agent for 10 minutes and pitch to them. And I like speed call, dating, but with your it's book. like it's it is like speed dating <laughs> with your book. And it is weird and and unnatural, especially I, I mean, I have a whole story that I'm not even going to go into here with this of how very speed dating it felt like. But when I called uh, Holber Alley Crew Urban Fantasy then, the agent that I was talking to, like, ranted at me of like, no, 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 no. That is not what Urban Fantasy is. You cannot call a secondary world fantasy Urban Fantasy because Urban Fantasy is very explicitly stuff that's set in a real city like Chicago or Seattle or New York or Denver and then has fantasy elements put onto it. So, no, it is not Urban Fantasy. See, I would absolutely call Meridane... It, it is second world urban fantasy. It has the the feel of that type of book. It has the structure, I think, of, of other urban fantasies I've read. It just happens to take place not of our yeah. world. Well, and I think that this hits, this hits immediately, I think, against the issue of these, which is, are these craft terms or are these marketing terms? And in a large way, they are marketing terms that many of us feel ourselves a bit uncomfortable with because they they don't position our books exactly as we would describe them necessarily because no I'm, I'm with Cass that makes total sense to me about your books Marshall and so like some of the marketing has been like you know epic fantasy meets urban fantasy or low fantasy meets urban fantasy and for a little while I was trying on clock punk for for a bit and and People gave me weird looks, so I stopped doing that. <laughs> we're all, we're all like listeners. Okay, we're all kind of going, like, eh, eh, doing the like, you know, shrugging motion. Like, eh. I think, I think at one con I did that, and the guy looked at me and just said in that really slow, condescending voice, "Clock, punk." Hmm? <laughs> oh dear. So I was like, Maybe this isn't working as a as a pitch. Hmm. I'll have to. I'll have to keep polishing it oh well (laughs) but yeah i think that is a huge thing is thinking about the difference in marketing terms and craft terms because as writers tragically in some ways we have to think about both you know you have to be able to tell yourself what kind of a story it is that you're telling and that may or may not be about genre it might be about the plot elements the aesthetic and things that can play into genre but eventually whether you are pitching to agents or If you're self-publishing and trying to get it noticed on Amazon, if you are any kind of a writer trying to talk about your work publicly, the subgenres provide a handy short reference for people that gives them an immediate idea of what kind of a book it is, but it might be limiting or it might only give part of the story. And and it's, it can be hard to wrap our minds around that, I think, unless you are very clearly like doing a genre in in capital letters yeah <laughs> which some people do and some genres i think lend themselves to that more e- some subgenres lend themselves to that more easily than others but it's not always as clear-cut as the labels on the shelves would have it yeah i mean i think so much of subgenre is about that dance between reader expectations and what a book and an author are actually providing and it's interesting because we do see so much through the lens of what our own expectations are as readers. And I, as a reader, I totally do this, that I have like the, like, this is what I expect when I go into 
epic fantasy or urban fantasy or romantic fantasy or whatever. Like I, I have the things that I expect and it's, it's kind of a weird dance of expectations to say like, okay, am, am I going to get all those things? And is it actually a failing of a book if I don't get those things? Or is it in fact the smudges on my lens <laughs> that's like coming between me and actually reading the book for what it is? Which is such a challenge. I actually, I just had a tweet storm about this today because I came across a review of velocity where their starting premise was like i was expecting a thing like this which would never have been a thing i described velocity as being so by starting from that spot they were obviously going to be disappointed because if you're like i'm waiting for it to become this that's never going to happen and so a lot of times it can the factor of this is the lens I'm looking at this through and through this lens, it's a failure is can be a real challenge because if that, if you put on those lenses with completely false premises or just cause you were misled or whatever, then that can be a real detriment to your experience as an audience. And partially the, the marketing position and positioning of torn and partially just what the story is and that there is a strong romantic subplot to it. Um, I think a lot of readers went into Torn believing it to be a fantasy romance and were rightfully disappointed with what it was because it's not. It, it has a strong romantic subplot, but it's not a romance. And dear listeners, if you still think it's a romance and you're hitting book three, I'm sorry, you will be disappointed because it's just not the story that it is, that it's not going to culminate in a, in a romance kind of way. And I think being as writers, being aware of what genre expectations are doesn't necessarily mean catering to them, but just being aware of like, this is what you're going to expect to see in this kind of book. And I am either providing it or I'm, I'm really not. And it's not, you know, it's okay if it's, if it's not your book because you wanted it to be fill in the blank here that's that's not an offensive thing i think as a writer for a reader to be like what i wanted was x and you're giving me y i wanted popcorn and you're doling out junior mints and it's just not what i want like that's cool that's part of why we have genre i think it's something i've become much gentler about in my reading of other books is like am i not vibing with this because it's it's not as well crafted as I wanted it to be or am I not vibing with it simply because I am not vibing with it or not vibing with it right now is it a a problem with my own expectations not with the book itself and that has that has made me a, a kinder gentler person when I review books and when I recommend <laughs> them to others and it helps me also be like well this I might not be the ideal reader for this book but I can think of people who would be I can think of people who if you like other things in, in this subgenre or of this tone, then you would also like this other book. I think romance is a tricky one. You're right, Rowena, that like the, the merest hint of a romantic subplot in books, particularly written by female authors, will get people labeling it as a romance. Whereas dude authors can put in, you know, all kinds of stuff and it, it, it does not attach the label in the same way. And there's a lot, there's a lot of, sexism in publishing and sexism in marketing to unravel there i've talked with many female authors who when they're talking about their books people are like so is it a romance no so it's ya no uh-huh yeah well then i don't understand those are well, the two categories no 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 <laughs> and, and romance <laughs> particularly has such 
strong genre conventions. Um, yes. Some subgenres, it's it's much squidgier, but romance as a category, as a genre, has certain demands. And whether or not the publisher says something's a romance, if a book starts getting put around as this is a romance and then it doesn't meet those demands, we can start running into some problems. But that might be a good place to start talking about conventions of subgenres and what does tweak these things out. I mean, and just to like tack on to that, you know, that's one of the reasons that romance readers enjoy romance. They know what to expect. And that's not a bad thing. No. And I don't think that we want to like act as though we are. And honestly, in fulfilling those genre expectations in satisfying ways is a craft and is something I, I know I respect a huge amount from fellow writers who do it well. I think romance is definitely one that has specific conventions that we look for even when it's got a second world fantasy layered over the top of it or a historical fantasy layered over the top of it. For me, romances are so nice for my anxiety disorder when I'm feeling particularly tweaked up on that. It's like I can pick up a romance brand new and know that it's, you know, there's certain things that are going to be there and I can just anticipate them in a good way, not in a scary way. There are epic fantasy books that I've picked up and been like, my brain space is not in the place for this right now because I don't know what's going to happen and that's bothering me. <laughs> it's like, I'll come back to this when I'm not quite <laughs> dialed up to 11. Some people like that. You know, some people like that, the, the roller coaster feeling of, I have no idea what's going to happen next. I have no idea. And sometimes, like me, you want one, one time and one thing a different time. And I think that's, all readers are valid. If you're reading books, you're valid. <laughs> but it's also true that, like, different genres have different things of what they're imposing upon upon the books because like with romance and also mystery a lot of those conventions are are structural they are about how the story is going to go with fantasy and sci-fi it's those tend to be more aesthetic and setting rather than structure and which is why those always make fun like mix and matches to do because you can take you can take a genre that is about aesthetic and setting and take a genre that is about structure and whack them together and now you've got you know you've got something that's the whole package you have an epic grim dark punk romance indeed <laughs> actually that this is one that always I, I think it's a slippery one epic fantasy what does that mean to you my glib answer is long <laughs> she well, says as someone who writes this um i i think that is probably the most the, the most consistent trait of epic fantasy is that they tend to be chonky books. They tend to be chonkier because they do a lot of setup. They often have more points of view. They often take place over a long period, longer period of time. They break the classical unities. You know, if the classical unity is something that is usually applied to drama, but it means that the story takes place in a single place at a single time. Epic fantasies, don't tend to do that. They tend to broaden on both the temporal and, and the map scale. If you open up a fantasy book and there's a map, there is a decent chance it's epic fantasy. Not 100%, but... Especially if that map includes, like, oceans and mountain ranges. Yeah, if it's like, a world map, then, you know... Yeah, if we're going to see lots of far-flung places, if we've got characters from, from lots of different perspectives whose paths may or may not even cross in the first book, <laughs> and things like that, then you might have an epic on your hands. Also for me, I think a lot of it is the stakes for an epic fantasy tend to be 
world spanning if not cosmos spanning and that that's a big thing of what makes it epic for me if it's just one guy traveling the world but like the biggest stakes are ooh, dinner tonight might not be good then that's really not epic but at least in terms at least in how it feels to me but if because you can have like a travel log fantasy that's not epic when you've got fate of nations stuff happening then fate of nations stuff happening yes this is gonna this is gonna make the history books in the second world that you have built it's probably epic. One of the things that, because I see epic fantasy too as an umbrella that probably includes other things under it, especially in terms of aesthetic and and to some degree tone and inspiration. And one of the things that I, I think we're getting away from, but for a long time, I think that epic fantasy and high fantasy were almost interchangeable to a lot of readers, expecting a certain kind of setting out of epic fantasy. That is that they expected kind of the high fantasy swords magicians etc um out of an epic and that i think that that has gotten challenged hard in the last decade or so which i think is awesome that epic fantasy can mean a fantasy that takes place in in all kinds of different second world settings not not just the stereotypical medieval fantasy world the term traditional fantasy has gotten thrown around a lot especially lately and that i think is and I think it's especially important that now we have been challenging that quote-unquote traditional model that is that sort of Western Europe, medieval to Renaissance and nothing else. I mean, I know plenty of the people who have been just writing flintlock fantasy like 15 years ago, they couldn't sell that because they'd be like, oh, no, 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 no. If you have guns, they're like, that's, no, that's that's just not fantasy. No. And so literally the idea of like, doing things that really challenge that model have been hey they've been we've been seeing it more and more which is awesome but like that has been so much the mindset of what fantasy is that it's even still really hard to break out of that and thus why people call traditional fantasy or epic fantasy like those terms are often used in a very interchangeable kind of way all right so what about grimdark like how how do you define grimdark in relation to because often it has the same kind of epic scope or setting as a lot of epic fantasy i think this is where tone starts layering in a lot and almost can you can you see it in the the gritty grainy film in your head does it have that color overlay in in your in the movie in your mind that you play while you're reading oh i like i like that i like that as as a a filter, ha, huh? as it were, for how he's this. Because, you know, you think epic fantasy, I think of like panoramic, like sweeping shots. And then you're right. If I think grimdark, I think of having that that certain saturation of overlay. Yeah. You sort of picture the, the you sort of picture There's the rainy streams. Out, and desaturated a, a saturated images. Bit of like, a little bit, yeah, a little bit like new wave, like intrusion of the camera into the scene, getting mud splatter on it. Yeah. Zooming in on the fight and then blood splatting across. Yeah. Because there will, with Grimdark, it does feel like blood is compulsory. Like it is about. (laughs) Yes. It is like about. Check. That sort of like, we need to highlight the harsh, terrible realities of what, you know, what a battle like this would be. What living like this would be. Like that's, that seems to be the underlying tone goal with Grimdark. Now that can go a lot of different ways. (laughs) 
I just think like like bodily bodily functions are optional in most genres. I feel like bodily functions are requisite in grimdark. I think you're right. I think that is a key a key element of like how detailed are we going to be about bodily fluids of all sorts. <laughs> it's a visceral genre in Indeed. in many meanings of that word. You know, it it is about physical feeling. I think it is about pain very often it's there there are worlds where everything hurts um and it has that bodily awareness even if it's not in the moments of violence it is it is it lives very much in the physical body whereas in lots of not all and certainly this has gotten less true over time but in lots of high fantasy epic fantasy it's like those characters might not have bodily functions at all for all we know like (laughs) they might just (laughs) magic everything right out of them um Blood is blood is only there if it's if it's poetic. It is very sort of like taken as read that bodily functions happen when people aren't on the page, whereas Grimdark is like, no, they're going to happen on the page. We're going to tell you all about them, <laughs> whether you want We're them or not. We're taking a trip together. So we kind of hit up um, historical fantasy to some degree, but I think there's more to poke at there because, Cass, yeah, yours is very much Rome with with the with the magic kind of forced in there. And then there are the historical fantasies that, that do take like real world events and people and, and do not attempt to even distance them at all. And then weave the magic or the whatever um, in there too. Um, so it's kind of a wide range of what counts, I think as historical fantasy. Yeah. And sometimes it's the alternate world where like a declaration of the rights of magicians where, Magic mm-hmm. is, it's an alternate because magic is known and out there and it's something they're dealing with, as opposed to the secret history type of historical fantasy where to to the outside world, to the non-magical people, history is exactly as we know it. But there's these things going on beneath the surface that, you know, William Pitt was a secret magician or something and no one knew. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell also falls in the prior category of the alternate history fantasy as opposed to, I'm trying to think of a good example of a secret history fantasy. To a large extent, the Harry Potters have always been a. I was trying not history. to do that. <laughs> yeah, but that's one of the things. It is. No, but it yeah. is. It is a good touchstone on that because yeah. it is. It's like it's. This is. This is the real world, but all this while there's been this secret thing happening. No, but you're right, and I think too, you know, a lot of fantasy, even if it is second world fantasy, is still very history inspired. So even if it's not historical fantasy, you start getting that like little bit of crossover and bleed um, that can take some of the tone and the aesthetic of a historical fantasy and layer it over second world. Which is sometimes the, I think some of the other genre difference and where you can separate out historical fantasy from epic a little bit sometimes. Historical fantasy can also employ some of the traits of traditional historical fiction. That can be about, you know, who the characters focus on. And, and being sort of the, you know, the, the magician's wife, the time traveler's nephew, things like that. The, 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 who would be considered side characters in history, but that's what historical fiction readers are often looking for, is that perspective. And it's not always the stakes that are fate of nations, or perhaps fate of nations things are happening around these characters, but they're not integral to them. I feel like I've seen a fair bit of historical fantasy that crosses over genre in that way between um the more the more literary fiction kind of historical novels (laughs) and the fantasy ones and 
you will find things on those shelves sometimes that I would call historical fantasy, but the publishers don't because they want to market them differently. <laughs> well, and I think looping back around to world building there, there are definitely world building choices that you make in a more historical fiction imbued kind of writing that you wouldn't make um, in in other areas that there's texture that a reader expects to see and so when they see historical on the marketing there's a texture that they want and that they expect um that kind of lends to the word i hate authenticity um but that makes the experience feel authentic for the reader that there's there are details there are um it feels researched perhaps in a way that an epic fantasy might not need to feel as researched um but that that fulfills a certain expectation for the reader. I think also this is where we get genre crossing a bit. Somewhere in, in the Venn diagram of historical fantasy and romantic fantasy, you get that fantasy of manners. You know, Pride and Prejudice with magic. Downton Abbey with mm-hmm. magic. Which, I love that kind of book. I want more of those out in the world. Yes. But yes, like like um, Midnight Bargain yes. by C.L. Polk the, and uh, the glamorist Mary Robinette Cowell's um, Shades of Milk and Honey. Yeah, yeah, that series. Yes, more of those, please, everyone. <laughs> and they and they hugely do rely on world building to give you that immersive feeling of a historical fiction piece, except it's fantasy. Which, when you move those sorts of historical fantasies close enough to the modern day, then they start to become urban fantasy at least the traditional model of what urban fantasy is like i said before urban fantasy tends to be set in the real world but with you know either the secret magic or or it's been or it's a alternate version of earth where magic has existed the whole time yeah there's another um shauna mcguire's toby day series is a good both secret present and secret history sort of of take on it those are urban fantasy books i would certainly say um, even though sometimes they wander out of the exact urban environment, but they have that feeling like the Fae are here. They've always been here. They've always been doing things, but non-Fae people just haven't noticed. So that sort of does have that crossover. Um. Well, see, that's the fascinating thing is the urban fantasy label. Like I said, it tends to be the more important thing is that it's set in an alternate version of Earth rather than it being set in a city. I mean, the Sookie stack houses, which are... <laughs> in you know yeah louisiana swamps you know that's that's still urban fantasy even though there's very little urban happening in them there's there's no herbs there's There's no no herbs herbs there (laughs) it's very not (laughs) herbs maybe but not herbs but I, i feel like like the place is still very important though like you have such a strong sense of place in those even if it's not an urban setting like it is it is a specific place that you can feel not only from you know the fact that they tell you but from how it's woven into the the story itself and and the details of setting that you're given but yeah urban fantasy often i think derives more from its structure than necessities of of dictations of genre sometimes that are more aesthetic like does it actually have to be in herbs urban fantasy i think has a lot of crossover with mystery novels detective thrillers things like that as opposed to other different genres of book there's something to unravel there's someone's dead very usually at the beginning of the book and figure out who did it or why or what's going on (laughs) 
people die in epic fantasy too but we usually either know who did it or we don't care so yeah we move <laughs> on real quick it, it's rarely a mystery in the epic fantasy who did the murdering because you know they usually did it Not in front of everybody curious about it yeah very open but again that that's a great example of where we tend to mash things up in urban fantasy it tends to use mystery and or romance as the as the engines with which to drive the story and then in the urban fantasy setting i'm even thinking about how this influences how the book literally gets published and that urban fantasies you are more likely to find in mass market paperbacks like you find romance novels and mystery and thrillers than than other other genres there there is say with epic fantasy there's almost the sense that like if it's not this doorstopper hardcover tome that you know will hurt you if you accidentally drop it then is it really an epic fantasy if you didn't get a hernia picking it up then how epic then is someone it? just wasn't trying hard enough yeah it's me i'm someone um <laughs> My little epic fantasies are only like 400 pages each. Slacker. I know. I, I, tiny little fantasies. So what about the punks? And there's so many of them. And there should be. There's so many punks. I love the punks. I do love them. I, I, I love, I particularly love steampunk, which is not the original. I think cyberpunk is probably cyberpunk the first Cyberpunk is punks. where that, that creation of using the term punk as a way to describe the genre that's where it originated and then steampunk came off of that and then the others came from there and people have issues with that <laughs> it's it well it in some ways it can over define to a point of being useless from a marketing standpoint because they're not going to have shelves and labels for each of those different things that's true but it does i think for authors and fans perhaps give you a clearer idea of where it intersects with other genres um i think steampunk's really fun i have a steampunk book on the back burner because it could never find a plot but it had a really cool world building and characters i just couldn't ever <laughs> assemble them into a plot someday i will try probably not right now i've been told that steampunk's been played out but it'll come back around everything does <laughs> all genres come back and all tropes come back into fashion but yeah, I mean, you've got your diesel punk, which communicates something different about the technology level and perhaps some of the tone and perhaps some of the social mores that the characters are dealing with. Um, so it it delineates the subgenre more and more particularly into finer and finer grains as, as we keep going down the punk tree <laughs> and hitting every branch. But I don't know, it doesn't bother me. It, it doesn't bother me at all, but I, I constantly hear from people who make this whole thing of like, well, what's punk about it? Which inevitably stems from people having this notion that the word punk is tied directly, sometimes very personally for them, of course, to the punk scenes of the 70s. So they'll look at the words like steampunk, diesel punk, and even hope punk and be like, well, that isn't what I think of punk. And... If you are only looking at the word punk very strictly in the sense of what it meant in the 70s in that particular you know social movement then yes you're right but that's certainly not the only meaning of the word because the word at its original core was just about anybody outside of the mainstream and so you know the punk movement adopted that word because that's how they felt about themselves that they were outcasts who took on that label and subverted it and repurposed it 
And as the suffix here, it's completely about, I'm going to take this thing that's familiar, be it a technology, an aesthetic, a time period, a movement, an emotion, and I'm going to take a hammer and tongs to it and shape it into what I want. And so punk is just a verb in this usage. The punk in it is the act of creative subversion to take the familiar and remix it into a new thing. So I find it this incredibly useful tool in fantasy world building because when, like I said, when we're talking about traditional fantasy, we're talking to a fault about things that look like medieval or Renaissance Europe, if not specifically Britain. So when you stray from that model, you have to work to clarify that that's not the kind of fantasy you're doing. So you have to punk the reader's expectations. And I think that there's something really beautiful that you can create a subgenre name that you can attach almost any word to it and create a, something that evokes an aesthetic, evokes technology, evokes tone. And with that evokes the expectations of this is what this story is going to feel like. This is what it's going to look like. And it's an incredible tool to give to any writer that lets them unpack all this information of what their story is, what their world is, with a single word. See, now you've made me want to start just, like, naming things and adding <laughs> punk to them. Like, <laughs> this is blanket punk. This is... <laughs> but see, that's the great thing about it, is you can do that, and people are like, oh, like, as much as they might hate the word, they'll immediately go like, okay, I have a sense of what that means. <laughs> Listeners, if any of you wants to write a blanket punk novel, I would be interested in hearing about that. <laughs> I think where where what you're talking about, Marshall, can be a sort of valid criticism of genre is steampunk got criticized a lot for using the Victorian aesthetic and using this particular time period's pastiche mm -hmm. um, without interrogating the things that are very troubling about the Victorian era, of which there are many <laughs> of all the problematic eras of human history. It's got to be up there. Highly ranked. We can blame so much about what's wrong with today. Back to the Victorians. I, we do. On the Victorians. <laughs> oh, it's just so many things. They needed therapy. <laughs> they did. And they did not have it. They just did opium instead. And that's not a substitute. No. That listeners, if you take nothing else away from our episode today, <laughs> opium is not a substitute for therapy. But I also think that it's not necessarily the fault of the genre that people make that criticism. That's a criticism of, of I don't want to say bad writing, but perhaps inexperienced writing or writing that has presumed rather than chosen. Very much so. Very much Because so. I, think, I think it was a thing where... With steampunk specifically, it came more as aesthetic than as necessarily story craft. And so there was a lot of presumption that the aesthetic was all there was. Or at least that's the element that people could very well just look at by seeing, say, steampunk cosplayers or something like that. And then it didn't become an element of story. It just became a, look at me, don't I look cool? And you do look cool. I'm not going to say you don't, but yeah, what's, <laughs> is there a story behind it? And does it do interesting things with, does it make interesting choices with what you're trying to do? And I think, I mean, in a lot of ways, any subgenre that leads with aesthetic runs the risk of not interrogating the roots of that aesthetic. And I think that it, whether you're talking about, 
grimdark or whether you're talking about steampunk or whether you're talking about sort of a um, fantasy of manners all of those have angles to them that have potentially problematic roots and I think that you know there are valid criticisms for any of those to kind of like okay so have you unpacked that have you thought about that where did that come from and why are you using it and do you play with and deal with and dig into it all why those aesthetic pieces are the way that they are and where did they come from and I certainly know when I was a younger writer I didn't because no one had (laughs) poked me and and encouraged me to do that digging you know when I was 20 the first attempt at writing something steampunk I did was absolutely just aesthetic and was that fun for me sure was it good writing no (laughs) should anyone else have had it inflicted on them no (laughs) but we grow, we learn, we do better, hopefully. It's very important for all of us to realize that whatever we wrote at 20, or at least for most of us, should just not be imposed upon other people. We've, we've talked a lot about the past. Perhaps now we need to look at our, our future or future-flavored genres. Future flavors? Future flavors. But this is where we start to cross over into sci-fi a little more, you know, whether it's the hard sci-fi or space fantasy, space opera, things like that. Where do those genres intersect? And this is always a thing for me, like sci-fi and fantasy for me are generally so closely related that I don't tend to mentally distinguish much between them. (laughs) Some people I know would argue very strenuously with me about that. So I think perhaps too much about like what's the line between something being hard sci-fi and something being space opera. And I get, I see a lot of times where people will call something that I would call space opera, call that hard sci-fi and vice versa. And I think for me, the big differentiation between the two is how many miracles the writer has allowed themselves. Like, if you look at, say, say something like Star Trek or Star Wars, those are pure space opera in the sense of, like, all the technology is just miracles. Like, nobody, nobody really thinks about, like, like how does the gravity on on a ship in star wars work that's never come up it's never gonna come up because the <laughs> if, gravity... if the inertial dampeners on the enterprise are down why are you all not goo why are you yeah. all not <laughs> spattered across star trek does at least yeah. a little lip service of like yes it's technology but i think star wars doesn't even like bother with no. like... bother. bother. we <laughs> didn't know what bother. hyperspace hyperdrive fuel was until the solo movie and even then it was like really just magic stuff in a jar fine sure i believe that it's a MacGuffin. yeah i'll I'll go with that (laughs) as you lean more towards hard sci-fi they'll usually pick one or two things like here's a thing that the math doesn't work but we need it for the story but beyond that they tend even if they don't give you the math they tend to operate in a universe where like those hard realities of like what having to like live in space is really like are gonna be and uh, like i think you see that in the expanse books a lot you see that in certainly you see that in mary robin and cole's lady astronaut books where those are alt history but even though it doesn't focus on the math and science it is showing us very much a world where the realities of what like a moon colony would have to deal with on a day-to-day basis and those day-to-day realities are are a key part of how that story works 
Yeah, and how far you fast forward probably affects the perception on some of that too That's in true. that you know, the lady astronaut books were figuring this stuff out in the moment, right? right. They're trying to figure out how are we going to make this work? Literally, I need an equation for this. Whereas, you know, you fast forward to something several thousand years in the future and suddenly those questions have been answered so long that it's like us asking, you know, I, I don't think about how a combustion engine works when I turn on my car. Like it's not even it's not even a thought for me. No, until it but breaks, it, you don't care. Right. And even then it's not a thought <laughs> for me. I'm like, well, someone knows how to fix this because I <laughs> don't. So awesome. So I think that there's an element of that too, that the flavor changes depending on how advanced are you going to make your society and what are they going to even be thinking about anymore so there's a lot of hand wavy stuff that um depending on the tone you're going for comes across as a miracle or comes across as that's microwave popcorn and we don't care how it works right you you missed our conversation last week rowena but you actually hit on something we talked about with (laughs) pj manny which was yeah the the plausible or already extant science of of near alternate futures Versus the further away and less predictable science of, you know, when you get hundreds and thousands of years out. But it's also just the question of normalization is getting in a spaceship and going to another planet and the realities of what you're going to experience on that planet. Are those going to be hard, strange things that you are going to experience or is that going to be? Is that going to be a Tuesday? And like, you know, you, you you don't you don't even think about like, oh, we have to go to this other planet and pick up some pick up the groceries and then and then pop back. Like if that's <laughs> if that's your mindset, then, yeah, it's going to feel normal and you're not going to think about the weirdness of that. Because like in that one episode of Firefly where Wash is like, this is like something out of a sci fi story. Like, <laughs> you live in a spaceship, live in honey. A spaceship, dear. <laughs> Something I've really enjoyed about the newest Star Wars books, the High Republic series, is that the inciting incident of the whole, the whole arc, the whole um, sort of realm within a realm they're dealing with in the High Republic is hyperspace stops working the way they expect it to, and it's because it's been interfered with in a certain way that I'm not going to give away to any any listeners who are unspoiled and, and might want to read these books, but. It so clearly illustrates that this is a technology they have relied on, that they are continuing to rely on, and then suddenly it doesn't do what they expect, and that throws the whole galaxy out of whack. Um, it was really a fun starting point for a whole series of books that are everything from you know middle grade to adult, and that's just fun. It's, it's a lot of interesting exploration of the assumptions that we make about the star wars universe in particular but i think also about light speed travel in general that's that's a big fundamental concept behind uh john scalzi's collapsing empire series we have this big interstellar empire that operates on this particular method of going from star to star and oh it's going bad Uh uh-oh now what (laughs) (laughs) well i think that that kind of segues too into the how does this affect your writing, right? Like, so you've chosen a genre, you've chosen a subgenre, or you've chosen a story, and therefore the subgenre has chosen you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and kind of which which way does that go? So, I mean, when you have a story that, you know, you want the inciting incident to be very science-focused, or the inciting incident is 
high magic focused or the plot is predominantly romantic. I mean, those things in some ways tell you you are guiding yourself now into particular choices with genre and therefore choices with world building that you're going to want to be aware of. Yeah. This is a question I see, you know, writers get a lot or it pops up in lots of Instagram writing challenges and things. And it's where do you begin when you're starting a new book? We've talked about this before. We've talked about it um, in, in a few episodes. Where do you start? For me, I generally start with aesthetic and then figure out plot many authors work exactly the opposite you know direction or as you say it may be partly divine for them if, if you know you want to write a mystery plot but fantasy that starts to narrow the subgenres that your book is likely to fit into not necessarily but likely and and the reality for you know traditionally published writers is that even if you don't feel it doing that your publisher will probably have those questions for you um, or will yeah. answer them for you because that's just, that's the reality of, of the beast, right? I mean, things are going to get marketed, so they're going to get marketed with particular terms attached to them. And hopefully said marketing will get it to the people who will want to read it and who will like it. Yes. Hopefully. <laughs> that's always what we pray for. Well, that starts getting into all kinds of other marketing things like <laughs> the, 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 the subgenre conventions of cover art. And oh, yeah. font choice and things like that. What does the physical outside of your book communicate about what's within it? And is that accurate or not? Sometimes it very much is. Sometimes not as much. And can such communications then screw up expectations of what the book is going to be? I can think of something that was actually an adult portal fantasy. But because of what the cover looked like, it looked like... People presumed it was going to be a urban fantasy romance kind of novel. And when it wasn't, people were like, well, this is just not what I expected at all. And thus got really mad about it. So for your works in particular, when you think about how they fit into or don't fit into particular subgenres, like what world building choices did you make um, in terms of inclusion or things that you didn't include? that were kind of specific to that genre positioning? I think with me, at least for the Meridane books, to an extent it was almost the opposite factor where I would hit a point where it's like, well, I want this sort of thing to exist or this sort of thing to happen. And part of my brain's like, well, that's not something that happens in epic fantasy. And then I was like, wait, is that okay? Do it. Can I, can I, do that even though it's not the sort of thing like can can i ignore what that that's the sort of thing that's supposed to happen in epic fantasy i can can i and like i was i mean we talk about choose versus presume but this was you know of course <clears throat> years ago where i you know was still not still in the process of figuring this out so the process of going like wait i don't have to do that be just because that's how it's supposed to be done because who said that that's how it's supposed to be done so and with the diesel punk book, I, I wanted my motorcycles and I wanted my, my radio. And <laughs> that was like at least the starting point of like, so therefore it's got to be diesel punk. I definitely started writing the Oven Cycle more heavily influenced by historical fiction than by epic fantasy. The early drafts had much more that tone, much more that pace, much more that personal life focus as opposed to the fate of nations focus. And 
my agent essentially convinced me that I needed to change that a little bit because it being a fantasy book meant it had to have different shapes in it than, than the earlier drafts did. And that was an exciting challenge for me. Like I took that on happily and the stakes certainly got a lot higher. <laughs> but the the tone early on was a lot more, you know, it was a different historical era, but it was a lot more Downton Abbey. It was a lot more dinner parties and political conversations, but not like if the wrong person wins, everyone might die sort of thing. <laughs> and that changed. That changed over time. And it was a change I made to be able to make a sale, to be able to sell myself to a publisher. I don't know that I regret that. I think some authors might and, and might have stuck to their guns more and maybe they would have been able to sell it to a publisher and maybe they wouldn't have. I don't know. It was a choice I made and I leaned into it and it's worked. But it is something that I am consciously aware of, that it was a choice I made to lean harder into the epic fantasy half of what I was doing. And what about you, Rowena? You don't get to dodge the question just because you asked it first. <laughs> so I know, I, I know I don't. Um, she tries to do that sometimes. I know, sneaky. <laughs> you know, I think for me, one of the things that was interesting was what you were saying earlier, Cass, about being influenced by history, but it not being a strict historical fantasy um, book, that there were a lot of details that I chose to include about the world, about what the characters encountered in a sort of day-to-day -day life in their world that were probably more similar to how you would think about historical fiction. That I wanted to include those things for texture um, that built out a second world, but built it out in a way that was really research-based in a lot of ways. Like, okay, I'm going to think about if I'm researching what city life in London or Paris is like, and I'm going to translate some of those things into how my not actual real world 18th century world is going to, to look like. So, so yeah, kind of thinking about not necessarily avoiding that because it wasn't an epic fantasy way to think about it, but leaning into that as like, this is a flavor that makes my thing a little bit different that I'm not writing historical fantasy. It's not the real world. It's only, you know, loosely inspired by multiple different historical places, but bring some of that flavor in as a way to make this way of writing my way of, of doing this. And especially with the world building, like this is my way of building this world is to give you kind of this, this research based in a lot of ways angle to it. I have no idea what to call the subgenre of the next thing in my docket, the, the Shakespeare theater inspired one, because it's going to be probably single point of view. It's in an urban location, but it does not have the plot structure of urban fantasy. It's not, it's, I have no idea what to call it. We'll find out when I actually write it, I guess, maybe, <laughs> or I'll let Connor figure that out for <laughs> it's me. I'll let my agent figure that out for fantasy. me. Fantasy. It's a fantasy. <laughs> it's going to be, you go. be standalone. It's going to be like, I don't know. It's like, I'll let other people figure that out, I guess. <laughs> I feel like it's a period piece, the term fantasy. low fantasy has been thrown around a lot for that sort of like, it's not epic, but it is a sort of epic setting. But it's like, but the stakes are not epic. And like, does big magic exist in the world? Yeah. Are any of these characters using it? No. Because <laughs> like, I feel like no one wants to be called low fantasy, though. Like, like, well, can we just go ahead and lean into it and call it like trash fantasy? <laughs> <laughs> Because I would, I would lean into that. I'd be like, "Yes, these are my trash characters. These, this is my, this is my raccoon fantasy. This is my. Yes. <laughs> they are a bunch of trash pandas. Raccoon punk. 
this is what it is. They are not saving the empire. They are <laughs> digging through garbage bins and causing hijinks. And I love them for it. <laughs> it does set the idea that, that within the fantasy genre, there are certain goals that are acceptable. And like, it's if it's not world saving, it's not saving a mystery. If it's not falling in love, it's like, then what are you doing? Why do you care about like putting on a good show or running a good clothing shop like these are not these are not topics that a fantasy book should be about which i disagree i think we should have fantasy that it is about all sorts of wild wacky things that are anybody's dreams of like what they're what they want to achieve and we should see more of that rather than than pushing that away yeah that's the thing with this project like if it's anything it's shakespeare in love or moulin rouge but i don't know what to call that within the fantasy genre i don't right. i don't know where that fits i have to make up a whole different it's theater punk that's what it is it's theater punk theater, theater punk. punk there you go boom did it done cool. slap it on a cover they're not gonna let me do that but <laughs> <laughs> but i'm gonna lean into that for now theater I th- punk i think that's a good thing to lean into like i said you take a word you and you apply the punk suffix to it and boom people know what you're doing you could you could go with shakespeare punk too possibly and that that would probably even more lock in like the visual aesthetic that you might be going for. I don't know. If I see. Good. I feel like that's going to make people expect like a Shakespeare adaptation, though, which is a mm. thing that sometimes happens in fantasy. And it's that's not true. that. It's it's not a an adaptation of a Shakespeare play. It's an adaptation of the world he lived in. But things to mull on because we're always having to mull on like. The worst part, I think, of this job is not the writing the book. It's the coming up with how am I going to pitch this in 17 words. (laughs) So that when I'm at a con in front of a person, they say, tell me about your book. You have an answer that doesn't make you sound like a moron, which, I mean, here we are 13 books and, and eight years later, and I still can't do that. But I think it is also a matter of doing these things in a way that evokes something that will give your readers the correct expectations so that when they pick up your books they're like yeah this is this is what i wanted this to be so thank goodness it exists and that it is what i want it to be because i see that a lot too where like when some like when a book that's coming out next year first gets announced with a with a quick blurb description you will get some people who will just pounce on it immediately of like oh my god this is perfect this is exactly everything what i want it to be and you just really really hope that it lives up to whatever expectation they just built up in their brain (laughs) of what you know the thing that you actually wrote will actually meet what they think it's going to be based on that first blurb and so I think a lot of what the work we're trying to do is create that proper set of expectations and doing that in the most efficient way possible and with subgenre words. <laughs> well, and I think it is interesting how world building comes to play in that, right? That part of creating those expectations within the first few pages are in not only the world that you build, but how it's conveyed. Mm. And what pieces you're showing and what pieces you're leaving out and what the character is revealing about it and what elements they're engaging with. Like that's all that's all world building work in a lot of ways that even the plot can be exactly the same between an epic fantasy, a 
epic, sorry, an epic fantasy, you know, something that's grim dark, something that has more of a historical flavor, but the changes that you're making to the aesthetic and to the tone that you're trying to convey, you know, even just in a few pages, a lot of that is how you build the world and how you show the world. Yeah, I, I think a lot about that, especially with the first few pages, certainly with Velocity Revolution, the first few pages of that, of like how much I needed to get out there quickly without it being like as you know bob we have motorcycles and we have radios and we have tacos (laughs) i would never mind someone saying to me as you know we have tacos though i mean that always willing to hear those sold me on that (laughs) i mean that is the absurd dance that we have to do at the beginning of every book is communicate right away here are these expectations here's the things that you should know based on just what kind of book this is going to be without saying this is what kind of book this is going to be so this is what you have to know like it's you have to seduce the reader without actually like telling them that you're going to seduce them yeah do you do you show the you know lead up to a illegal motorcycle race in your first pages or do you show someone's everyday working at a coffee shop these are going to be two different stories yeah <laughs> that can be happening in the same world in the same you know concept but the tone's going to be so different that it's going to inform where you're landing in terms of genre it's funny because they say so much like oh you should start with action and i think a lot of people misinterpret that but part of the advantage of starting with an action kind of scene is it immediately can give you the sense of like here's how this world works because this is what's this is what's allowed this is what's not allowed through what happens in those first few pages through the action that your main character is engaged in well you show active engagement with the world it's not it's not a, a passive observation or you know something that's so everyday and normal that that the character doesn't engage with it they're actively engaging with the world and making active choices that are either falling into what the world expects and demands or are running counter to it and are rebelling against it or whatever like you have like a really crunchy engagement and activity right up front well i also think this is one of those things we're gonna be talking about more and more over the course of this season i think just like we had last episode we dove into what cyberpunk means I think part of what we are going to want to do is delve a little deeper into each of these subgenres and what the world building choices of those can be and hopefully have some really cool guests who can highlight that who've made incredibly brilliant choices in those subgenres. So keep listening and you'll find out who they are and what we're talking about. Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on August 4th, where we'll be talking with Sarah Beth Durst about word choices and voice in your world building. 
We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. Thank you.